Mama Murdered a Podcast, we're diving into part five of the JonBenet Ramsey case. Last week, we basically only talked about the pineapple and the mysteriously appearing flashlight that no one is ever able to say, like, where it came from or whose it was. And then we left off on the fact that we would be covering the interview that was done by child psychologist with nine-year-old Burke Ramsey shortly after JonBenet's death. But in the three parts before last week, we covered a lot more than just pineapples and flashlights. So, I would highly, highly, highly suggest that you go back and listen to those before you try to start here. Or else this episode may not make a whole lot of sense to you. Now, before I say let's get it, let me just say that I know last week was supposed to be the last week that I was late on an episode or the last week that I missed an episode, which I've only ever missed one week. And that's when we were doing the She Shed and having it built. But this week, I am late on the weekly episode for a different reason that I don't think I will ever apologize for. If you don't follow me on social media, then you probably have no idea why this episode's a day late. So go follow me. (laughs) My grandpa lives four hours from me. He's having his house renovated, and he's staying at my aunt's lake house, which is only an hour away. So all day Monday and all day Tuesday, that's where I was. (laughs) I usually do a lot of research on those days, but not this week, so had to do that yesterday when I would normally be recording. I don't get to see him nearly as much as I would like, and this week, with him having his house renovated and being pretty close to my house, it just felt right. (laughs) So this week's episode's late because I love my papa and I recognize that he's not going to be here forever and that not everybody's lucky enough to still have their grandparents. So... With this little explanation out of the way about why this episode's a day late, I would highly suggest that you follow me on social media so you can be updated like everybody else. With all that being said, and without further ado, let's get it. So, shortly after JonBenet's murder, I think it was actually like only 13 days after JonBenet's murder, that nine-year-old Burke was interviewed by a child psychologist. And people tear this interview apart. They say that they feel like Burke is acting weird, or that he's too fidgety, or that he doesn't seem as emotional as they would think he would be, and just all kind of stuff that's always said about this interview. So I want to go through some of it with y'all and try to explain what everyone points out is weird or suspicious, or whatever the case may be. So Burke was asked if he was back in school, and he tells the psychologist that's interviewing him that he hasn't gone back to school yet. Because his family's trying to stay out of, you know, out of the media. He also tells them that press reporters wait outside of the school for him every day just to ask kids in his class if Burke was in school today. 
He even kind of acts out how some of his friends have said that the media will ask them these things. So he holds out an invisible microphone up to their face and asks them if Burke was in school today or not. I mean, I can kind of see how people think that's weird, but he's also nine. And then she asks Burke if he feels safe, and he says that he does. And then the one thing that I think bothers a lot of people about this interview is when the psychologist asks Burke if he has any secrets. And Burke answers and says, I probably do, but I don't really remember them, and even if I did remember any, I don't think I would tell you. And the psychologist kind of laughs and asks, like, well, why not? Why wouldn't you tell me? And Burke says that they wouldn't be secrets anymore. And none of these are quotes. I'm paraphrasing the conversation from just watching the interview again today. So then the psychologist asks if anything has changed at home since John Monet's death. And Burke says that his house has been blocked off and that his parents sometimes cry a lot. Which, this then prompts Burke to say, I'm basically just going on with my life. And during this entire interview, there are like toys laying around, there are snacks on the table, And you can just tell that this lady that's doing this interview, that she's specifically trained to interview children. She's extremely calm, her voice is warm and soothing, and she seems very natural as far as the way she asks and words certain questions, and how she doesn't really prompt him to say anything until he kind of runs out of things to say, and then she kind of leads him into the next question. But this is only 13 days after Burke's sister was murdered inside of their own house, and he says that he feels safe. And then he says that he's just ready to move on with his life. And I feel like kids don't typically speak like that. Nine-year-olds don't normally say things like, I'm just ready to move on with my life and move past this, which is essentially what Burke is saying. And to me, that sounds more like something a grown-ass adult would say, like maybe he's heard somebody say that about JonBenet's death. Or maybe that's something that he's heard someone else tell someone else about another death or tragedy, you know, somebody else that he knows. But either way, I still feel like this is something that he would have had to have heard from someone else, whether or not it was in relation to JonBenet's death or not. So Burke says that he's just ready to move on, and she asks him what he thinks happened to JonBenet, and Burke says that he knows what happened. But I think he's more so saying like, yeah, I know she passed away, and not like, yeah, I know exactly how she died. And I think this is something else that the Burke did it people try to point to that they say that he claims to have already known what happened to her. But in reality, I think he's just saying that he knew that she'd been killed. And when the psychologist asks Burke how he thinks it happened, he goes on to explain exactly where his dad found the body. And then he says that his dad, John Ramsey, told him that he found the body in the basement And then Burke goes into what he thinks happened. He says that he thinks maybe someone took John Bonet quietly and that they made her go down into the basement with him. Then he says that maybe whoever took her down into the basement, that maybe they took a knife out and then started stabbing her. And he does this stabbing motion with his hand as if he's holding a knife. And I know for a fact that this is something that freaks some people out. Because they say like, Why is he reenacting the motion of stabbing someone while he's being asked how he thinks his sister was murdered? But then Burke says that maybe whoever killed her used a hammer to kill her with. So it sounds to me like he's just theorizing on what could have possibly happened. And I don't think he would have said the thing about the knife or the hammer had he not been asked how he thought JonBenet was murdered. Because 99% of the time, if you ask a kid something that they don't know the answer to, 
they're just going to make something up. And I, I feel like that's kind of what Burke was doing. And this is also coming from someone who was in the Burke Did It camp for years, allegedly, don't sue me. Because it wasn't until I looked into this case again as an adult, and then again as a parent, that I stopped believing that it could possibly be Burke. And now I just honestly have no idea what I think happened. After all the research I've done and all the interviews I've watched, me personally, I just don't know anymore. <laughs> so... Let's keep going. Burke describes how John Ramsey told him that John Bonet was in heaven now, and then he says that he started crying when his dad told him that. So then the psychologist asked how he was dealing with the loss of John Bonet now since it had been a couple of weeks. And Burke says that sometimes he forgets about it because he's busy playing video games. Which this isn't really that weird for me either, because even I find myself forgetting that certain family members of mine have passed away. Like, I'll just all of a sudden have a memory or be thinking about them, and then it's almost like it just hits me all over again. And this is especially something that happens when I think about or talk about my Uncle John, because Lord knows I have some good memories with him. He's just one of those cousins that was way too old to be a cousin, so he turned into an uncle instead. But I still think of him and have, like, have to remind myself that he passed away. So... I feel like maybe this is what Burke means when he says that sometimes he forgets. Like, to me, this feels normal, but this could just be a me thing. I could be very well wrong about that. So this is the point where the psychologist asked Burke to tell her a little bit more about his family while he draws a family portrait. She gives him all the stuff that he needs to draw a picture of his family with, and during this session, the psychologist was asking about what he liked about each parent, and, you know, as she's asking these questions, Burke is just drawing pictures. So he drew Patsy and John, he drew himself into the picture, and once the picture was done and he was completely finished, it is worth noting that Burke never drew John Bonet into the family picture. And this could possibly be interpreted as weird, because it had only been 13 days since John Bonet passed away, and somehow Burke was already not including her as part of their family anymore. But it could also be she has passed away, so she's not physically there anymore. That could be his nine-year-old mind looking at it that way. And during this entire session with this child psychologist, Burke is kind of squirming around, he can't sit still, he talks a lot about playing video games, and he doesn't really seem to be that bothered by the fact that his sister was recently murdered. But I think people forget that Burke was nine years old. I'm not saying that nine-year-olds don't kill people because they can and they have. I'm just saying that if a nine-year-old is uncomfortable with the questions they're being asked, or even the topic or discussion is making them uncomfortable, they're gonna squirm, they're gonna fidget, and they're not gonna be able to sit still. This doesn't strike me as unusual. Actually, I feel like this is probably perfectly normal. My kids do this. My nieces and nephews do this. All the kids that I know that I've seen in a situation like this where you have to talk to them about something important, but also something that's kind of uncomfortable to talk about, they get the same way. And death is hard, even for adults to talk about. So imagine being nine years old and then having some random stranger ask you questions about your sister who was also just recently killed inside of your own house. That would make any of us uncomfortable. 
So the reasons that people say that this interview with Burke is suspicious are the same reasons why I'm saying to keep in mind that he's nine years old. Now, the Dr. Phil interview with Burke that he did 20 years after the murder, now that's some weird shit, and we'll definitely talk about that, but this interview doesn't seem so strange to me. Now, after this interview, Burke Ramsey was interviewed again in 1998. This time he was 11 years old. And also in 1998, John and Patsy Ramsey were interviewed again as well. And during this interview, one of the police officers asked Patsy if maybe John Bonet's death had been an accident. And you can see, hear, and tell that this question pisses Patsy off. She kind of slams her hand down on the table at one point. She's just kind of like, what are we even doing here? What's the point? You can tell Patsy's getting angry about this line of questioning. And you can say, of course she got mad and defensive because she's guilty. And because that's exactly what happened. Or you could point to it and say, of course she's pissed. She already lost her child and now the police are looking at her as a suspect. Which only means that they're not looking for her daughter's actual murderer if it wasn't her. So just like everything else in this case... I guess whichever one of those scenarios you believe would depend heavily on whatever you believe happened to John Bonet and who you think is responsible. So, like I mentioned already, John and Patsy were interviewed again in 1998, and so was Burke. And I want to go through some of the questions that Burke was asked and then go over his responses. So, the first thing that he was asked was something like, why do you think you're here? And Burke answers by saying something like, because you want to know who killed my sister, or maybe it was you're trying to find out who killed my sister. But it was something along those lines. And then Burke has asked if maybe he had a snack on the night right after they had all gotten back from the White's houses at the Christmas party. And Burke says that he may have, but that he doesn't really seem to remember, which would make sense. It's been like a year and a half, or maybe even close to two years during this interview in 1998. So then this guy goes on to ask Burke, like, what fruits would typically be in their house? And Burke says pineapples. And then he says that he and John Bonet both loved pineapples. So after this, Burke is asked if he was awake or asleep the morning that John Bonet was found to be missing. And Burke says that he was awake, but that he was laying in the bed with his eyes opened and that he could hear his mom, quote unquote, going psycho. And those are Burke's words. He said that he could hear Patsy going psycho. And then at one point, Burke is asked what he thought was going on when he heard Patsy going psycho. And Burke says something along the lines of that he was trying to figure out what had happened. And then he says he thought that maybe John Bonet had been kidnapped. He says that her being kidnapped was probably unlikely. And why would a kid immediately go to, I wonder if my little sister has been kidnapped? I'm not sure. But at this point during the interview, Burke was about 11. And I'm kind of thinking that Burke is only saying that he was laying in bed trying to figure out what happened and that he wondered if maybe John Bonet had been kidnapped because that's what he'd been hearing for the last two years. That everyone thought that John Bonet had been kidnapped at first up until they found her body. But I have an 11 year old and he would definitely just try to think of anything that he'd heard so that he could say that. Because as a kid, when you hear an adult speak, it feels like since they're an adult, they have to be right. They must know what they're talking about. And then you don't learn this until later on in life when you're an adult yourself, that even adults are wrong. (laughs) But Burke hearing that John JonBenet was kidnapped over and over and over, 
And then with this case being covered in the media like it was, that's probably exactly why he said that he was laying there wondering if she'd been kidnapped. But then this just completely contradicts what John Ramsey has always, always, always said. John Ramsey is adamant in every single interview that he's ever done that he checked on Burke after they found the ransom note and that Burke was asleep and that Burke did not come out of his room and that he was absolutely not awake, which would then mean that it was absolutely not Burke that could be heard on the 911 call. But then Burke himself is saying right here that he was awake. So he's saying that he wasn't asleep and that he could hear all the commotion from Patsy and John and everything that was going on. So somebody's lying. We just don't know if Burke's lying about being awake or if John's lying about Burke being asleep. Either one's possible and either one's plausible. (laughs) But that's the problem within this case. It's almost like we don't know anything for sure. Nothing in this case is 100% for sure, concrete, cold hard fact. May end up just naming this episode Burke because it seems like that's mostly what I'm focused on so far as far as the interviews and his answers and things like that. But for now, I think I'll wait until we actually get to the place in the timeline where Burke sits down with Dr. Phil 20 years later. Because we still have some things to go over from when the case was fresh and then there's a lot that happened before that interview with Dr. Phil. So I'm trying my absolute best to stay within the actual timeline of events and I'm trying not to jump around with what I'm talking about. And this is probably one of the only cases where skipping around and jumping from the timeline to right after the murder to talking about something that happened to 20 years later, that's really hard for me with this case. Just because I've consumed so much information on this case. Now, one year after John Bonet's murder in December of 1997, The police were publicly saying that the Ramseys were under a quote-unquote umbrella of suspicion. And this is probably exactly why the Ramseys declined a second interview with the Boulder Police Department in January of 1998. The Boulder Police had no issue with saying that they thought the Ramseys were guilty, but the District Attorney's Office didn't think that it was the Ramseys at all. The district attorney's office actually went more with the evidence of the intruder theory, which is interesting. So the next big thing that happened in this case happened in 1999. And this is when the district district attorney <laughs> decided to take all of the evidence that they believed would prove that John and Patsy Ramsey should at least be indicted and have to face a trial on charges. And they took all that information and evidence in front of a grand jury. And I'm sure that we've talked about grand juries before, but in case we haven't, it's basically just like a trial, except it's kind of done in secret. And the information isn't made available to the public like a regular public trial would be. Another difference is that the job of the jury during a grand jury trial isn't to decide guilt or innocent, but instead they have to decide if there's enough evidence to prove probable cause to be able to file charges to take a case to trial. So... This grand jury trial was done and John and Patsy Ramsey were never formally charged. Nothing else ever came of it. And it was just kind of never talked about again for a while. So naturally, after the grand jury was over and done with, the DA did a press conference and says that there won't be any charges pressed against the Ramseys, yada, yada, yada. And I think everyone just assumed that the grand jury had decided that there wasn't enough evidence to indict John or Patsy on charges. But the truth would come out about what happened during that grand jury trial later on, and that wouldn't happen until October of 2013. 
Because in 2013, court documents that had previously been sealed were finally released to the public. And those documents that were unsealed showed that the grand jury had actually voted to indict John and Patsy Ramsey on charges of child abuse resulting in death and on charges of being an accessory to a crime. And the jury had decided that both John and Patsy would face those same two charges. So whatever happened inside of that grand jury trial, the jury had seen enough that they voted to take the Ramseys to trial on these two charges. But the grand jury trial took place in 1999, and these court documents weren't unsealed until 2013. And in all of those years in between, John and Patsy Ramsey were never indicted on any charges. Even though John and Patsy had both talked publicly about how they were kind of anticipating being arrested on charges after the grand jury was done and had made a decision. Like they'd lined up somebody to keep Burke and all kinds of shit. Like, even John and Patsy were thinking that the grand jury was going to say that there was enough to indict them. So, now you're probably wondering the same thing I was wondering. If the grand jury voted, saying that there was enough evidence to bring charges on both John and Patsy Ramsey, then why were they never indicted on charges and taken to trial? Well, that would be because the district attorney claimed that there was, quote-unquote, insufficient evidence. Which, this kind of ended up being a too-little-too-late situation, because in 2006, Patsy Ramsey passed away from ovarian cancer. But if you'll remember what I just said a second ago, the district attorney is the one who decided to get the the grand jury together to see if there was enough evidence to indict the Ramseys in the first place. And then after the grand jury said, yep, there looks like enough evidence here to indict, Then all of a sudden, that same district attorney was like, nah, you know what, never mind, don't even worry about it. And that's not something that just happens all the time. Actually, that rarely ever happens. Because usually, a grand jury is convened because a district attorney is at a point where they think they probably already have the most evidence that they're going to get on somebody. So they want to take it in front of a grand jury just to see if there's enough evidence to actually go to trial. So why would he go through all of that and then decide that there's not enough evidence to go through with an indictment? I don't know, y'all, but that sounds pretty fishy to me. Actually, that sounds real fishy. And honestly, the only thing I can think of as to why the district attorney didn't go ahead with an indictment is that the DA's office, or at least the people working on this case, they didn't think the Ramseys were responsible for this murder. Now, we know that the Boulder Police Department did think it was the Ramseys, And the police department and the district attorney's office are supposed to work together in solve cases and get criminals to trial and hopefully be able to convict them. But these two weren't working together at all. They were more or less working against each other. And something else that you'll see that happens a lot within this investigation and this case is that people either retire, resign, or try to hand this case over to somebody else. It's like once they get into the details and down to the nitty gritty... They see what a convoluted mess this case is, and this case didn't get like that on its own, but once they see that, it's like they're immediately done with it. The district attorney, Alex Hunter, who took the Ramseys through the grand jury trial, announced his retirement right after the grand jury was done. So, the grand jury was in 1999, and then district attorney Alex Hunter announced his retirement in 2000. And then the police chief at the time, Tom Kobe, also resigned right after this grand jury convened too. Steve Thomas, who was one of the first lead investigators, he resigned saying that this investigation was severely compromised. 
And as if that weren't enough people, Sergeant Larry Mason was also removed from the case due to suspicion that he had leaked vital information about the case to the media. And after Sergeant Larry Mason was removed from the case, he filed a lawsuit against the Boulder Police Department for removing him from the case in the first place and accusing him of leaking information. Now, Sergeant Larry Mason won that lawsuit and was awarded a good bit of money. And then the former police chief that I was just talking about, Tom Kobe, he made a statement saying that removing Sergeant Larry Mason from John Bonet's case was one of the biggest mistakes of his career. So it doesn't seem to me like Sergeant Larry Mason was the one leaking the information to the media, or else how did he win the lawsuit? That just that makes sense in my head. I could be wrong. Now, Linda Arndt, we can't forget about her. She was the one that was left at the Ramsey's house that morning when all those people were there, and she was supposed to be containing a crime scene. Now, she actually sued the city of Boulder and the police chief at the time, Tom Kobe, for violating her freedom of speech because a gag order was placed on everyone within the Boulder Police Department, and this was done in relation to only John Bonet's case. But none of these people were filing lawsuits and suing the police department and resigning and retiring until after the district attorney decided to not go through on the indictment of John and Patsy. Which may have been one of the reasons why the district attorney and the police department couldn't seem to work together on this case. Because for whatever reason, the district attorney really had it out for the police department and vice versa. And I couldn't really find a reason as to why. Because the Boulder police would try to get, like, very normal, very typical things subpoenaed, like the Ramsey's phone records and bank statements and other things like that that get approved literally every day in any other case. And the district attorney basically just told Boulder Police Department, no. Like, no, you can't have these very normal things for an investigation that almost anybody can get. But I want to talk a minute about the way that the article was written about the grand jury and the way that it was worded, because it is worded so weird. Actually, I'm going to pull it up and read it for you word for word. You can find this article on the CNN website. So just know I'm not trying to copyright anyone. I'm reading this verbatim just so we can talk about the way that it's worded and what I interpreted it to mean. And maybe you'll agree. Maybe you won't if you don't please reach out and let me know why this is a case I can talk about. Like, I could keep talking about it even after I'm done. So, this article says, quote, The grand jury had alleged that Patricia Poe Ramsey, who died from ovarian cancer in 2006, and husband John Bennett Ramsey, did permit a child to be unreasonably placed in a situation which posed a threat of injury to the child's life or health, which resulted in the death of John Bennett Ramsey. The grand jury also alleged that each parent did render assistance to a person with intent to hinder, delay, or prevent the discovery, detention, apprehension, prosecution, conviction, and punishment of such person for the commission of a crime, knowing the person being assisted has committed and was suspected of the crime of the murder in the first degree and child abuse resulting in death. So, what do you get out of that? Because the way that I understood that and the way that I comprehended that it sounded to me like the grand jury didn't think that John and Patsy actually killed John Bonet, but instead it sounded like they thought that something that they either did or didn't do is the reason that she died. Like they possibly helped whoever killed John Bonet, or, you know, maybe they helped cover up the murder. And my interpretation of what that meant could be wrong, 
but though I've read that a few times just to see if I've understood it correctly, and if I did, then that's interesting. Because who else was in that house? Supposedly, nobody besides John, Patsy, and then Burke. So this makes me wonder what evidence was shown at the grand jury for them to come to this conclusion. Because the Boulder Police Department have said over and over and over again that Burke Ramsey is not a suspect. That they don't think that he knows anything more than what he's saying, and that they don't believe that he was involved in JonBenet's murder in any way. But then people flip this statement about Burke being innocent around, and they kind of point to the fact that Boulder Police Department screwed up so many different things in this case, that it's almost like they've lost all credibility with a lot of people, as far as the investigation team goes. <laughs> so either they're right and Burke Ramsey is completely innocent or they're wrong and they all need their investigation cards taken away from them altogether. <laughs> but let's keep going because the grand jury was done in 1999 and then things were kind of at a standstill for a while after this, except for in March in 2000 when John and Patsy Ramsey published the retelling of what happened to John Bonet in a book that they wrote that was titled the death of innocence. And after this, there wasn't really much movement in this case, and there wasn't anything new found. And then in 2006, Patsy Ramsey passed away from ovarian cancer, like I've already mentioned. But then on August 16th, 2006, just two months after Patsy had passed away, the weirdest shit happened. A 41-year-old man named John Mark Carr was arrested in Thailand. Carr was arrested for the murder of John Bonet, and he claimed that he had drugged her and sexually assaulted her before he accidentally killed her. And once police start to question Carr and they interview him, they're kind of shocked to learn that Carr knew details that hadn't been released to the public. Which, I hadn't really thought about it before until now, but honestly, I'm kind of amazed that the police even have any holdback evidence for this case at all. And holdback evidence is just the evidence that police don't let the public know about just for situations like this where you have someone that knows things that haven't been published in the papers or reported about in the news. So Carl was able to tell them some things that hadn't been made public. But the more that police looked into Carl, the more psychological problems they found. There were also no drugs or alcohol found in JonBenet's system and Carr claims to have drugged her and then sexually assaulted her. And the DNA that was found at the scene and on JonBenet's body, that was tested and it did not match Carr. So after this, John Mark Carr was released from custody. Now, later on, John Mark Carr would make a statement during an interview where he kind of alluded to the idea that maybe he had been at the crime scene when JonBenet was murdered, but that maybe he hadn't been there alone. He actually said, quote, Everyone was so quick to say that I was a liar or delusional. Did it ever occur to someone that I might have been trying to protect someone else? So, now he's trying to say that he's only confessing to protect and cover up the crime for someone else who may or may not have been with him at the time of the murder. And I just wanted to add this here because I've heard it reported a few times that John Mark Carr was having surgeries and taking steps to transition to a woman and that he'd also changed his name. And normally I would try to be as respectful as possible and not use somebody's dead name, but in this case, I could not confirm this either way whether or not he was transitioning. The article that I found about this new information about him not being alone at the time of the murder, and about him trying to confess to protect someone else, 
That article said that Carr himself said that someone had started the rumor that he was transitioning. So I'm not sure one way or the other. And frankly, I wasn't wasting my time to look up this sick piece of shit. So after this, the next big thing doesn't really happen until about two years later. And that was on July 9th, 2008, when Boulder County District Attorney Mary Lacey made a statement that no one in the Ramsey house is a suspect, and she even offered a formal apology addressed to John Ramsey. District Attorney Mary Lacey also released a statement saying that the DNA that was discovered in this case was able to be confirmed that it was a genetic profile that belonged to a man. But that DNA was tested and it wasn't able to be linked back to anyone in the Ramsey house. And I've seen things about the trace DNA that was found in JonBenet's underwear. I've seen where investigators almost just think that the trace DNA may have come from the packaging factory, where the underwear were actually packaged to be shipped out to the stores for customers to buy. But I don't know if that's been proven as fact or if that's just speculation or even if maybe it's misreported on. So either way, in 2009, this case was moved from the FBI being the lead team to investigate it back to the Boulder Police Department being the ones responsible for the investigation, which usually is not a good sign because that usually just means that it's a cold case now and the FBI's done all that they can do. And normally if the FBI can't solve it, I'm going to step out on a limb here, I would probably guess that the police department who botched this entire investigation probably won't be able to solve it either. But let's continue because the next kind of big thing that happened from here is just that John Ramsey remarried and he wrote another book. This book he titled The Other Side of Suffering. Now, on October 25th in 2013, this is when the grand jury indictment was actually unsealed and everybody learned that it was actually the district attorney who decided to not go forward with the charges and that the grand jury had all agreed that there was enough evidence to indict which we've already gone over that, but I did want to make sure to do my best to keep the timeline straight. So I did want to throw that in there. And then there was another man who was arrested in connection to JonBenet's murder. That was 52-year-old Gary Oliver. He was arrested for downloaded child pornography. And the Boulder Police Department had gotten a tip from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is how Oliver got on their radar to start with. And I'm not sure if it's Oliver or Oliver. Everything I've seen said Oliver. But maybe I'm just pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> but regardless, police said that Oliver may have been close by the Ramsey house on the night of the murder. And then when he was arrested, officers found a picture of Jean Bonnet in his possession. And Oliver just flat out admitted to having an obsession with Jean Bonnet. So that could explain the picture. But then there was a friend of Gary Oliva's that came forward to tell police about a call that he'd gotten from Oliva on December 27th, 1996. That would have been just the day after JonBenet's body was found in the basement of her family house. And this friend says that Gary was known to everyone as Scary Gary, and that should be enough to speak for itself. He also said that Gary would break into places and steal art supplies, which is weird all by itself, considering the garrote was also used with a paintbrush handle. But this friend says that when Gary Oliva called him that night, that he told him that he had hurt a little girl. Now, I'm assuming that Gary was a dark kind of man because this friend didn't call the police when he said this. He actually didn't call police until later on that day when he went and got a copy of the LA Times. 
In the LA Times, there was a story about a six-year-old girl named John Bonet who had been murdered and found in the basement. This was pretty close by to where Oliver would have been, and this friend says that as soon as he saw the LA Times article, he knew immediately that Gary had killed John Bonet. So he did end up calling the police's tip line, but he says that police never followed up with him or got in touch with him to get more information about his friend Gary, which again was the one that had called to say that he'd hurt a little girl. And honestly, the police probably didn't follow up on this tip because they were convinced from the start that they knew who killed John Bonet and they were laser focused on the Ramsey family and they were too busy trying to prove that it was them to look into any other tips. Gary's friend called the tip line again about three months later and again he never heard anything back from them. But, Gary Oliva was arrested on charges of downloading child pornography, and from jail, he still writes this friend that he called, and I found an excerpt from one of those letters. This friend that Gary called still tries to keep in touch, just in case Gary ever feels comfortable enough to confess or maybe give him details that the police don't know that they would be able to use to try to solve this case. So, I found an excerpt from one of the letters that was sent from Gary to this friend, and I want to read it because I feel like it shows where Gary is mentally. It says, quote, Please don't give up on me. I never loved anyone like I did John Bonet, and yet I let her slip and her head bashed in half, and I watched her die. It was an accident. Please believe me. She was not like the other kids. Please don't hate me. You're the only person I write to. I'm sorry I'm evil and murder children. So, within two sentences, we went from it was an accident and I'm sorry to I'm sorry I'm an evil person and I murder children. Hmm. And I'm just assuming that police have tested the DNA that was found at the crime scene and on JonBenet's body against Gary Oliver and that it wasn't a match because there have never been charges filed against him for the murder of JonBenet. But this is kind of insane because Gary had ties to a house that was only a few houses down from the Ramseys. And Gary will willingly and openly admit to being completely obsessed and infatuated with John Bonet. He even referred to her as his quote-unquote religious right. And he's admitted to murdering her multiple times since he's been arrested on the charges of child pornography. He draws pictures of John Bonet, he writes poems about John Bonet, And he was even spotted at the candlelit vigil that was held on the one-year anniversary of her murder. Gary was one of 38 registered sex offenders that were living within a two-mile radius of the Ramsey house at the time of the murder. The Ramseys have had their private investigators looking into Gary since then, but they haven't found anything to be able to definitively link him to JonBenet's murder. So, it seems like Gary's a good candidate. We just need to figure out who the DNA belongs to, where it came from, and that would have to help with something. So, for now, I think this is a good stopping place because I have to get into the Dr. Phil interview with Burke that happened 20 years after JonBenet's murder, and then we'll get into the CBS docuseries that basically told everybody watching that they believe that Burke Ramsey was JonBenet's murderer. But I want to get into those more next week because that's probably going to be a whole episode just on those two things. I'm so sorry that this episode's late. I feel like I've been late every week for the last few weeks. 
And the episodes have been a lot shorter than what I like to do. But I just feel like every week something new's happening. This week we had a death in the family and I was more concerned about going to see my grandpa. But it just seems like every week there's something new. So I don't know if I need to change the release day or I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to get my shit together. I'm trying to get my life together. I'm working on it. I've been working on it for 30 years. I'm still working on it. So I'm going to read the review of the week right quick. And then I have to go start dinner for my crotch goblins. (laughs) So this week's review of the week comes from Apple Podcast. Because obviously there and Audible are the only two places you can leave a written review. So those are the only two options I have. (laughs) This one comes from E1276. It's five stars. It says, I love the podcast. I always listen to the podcast and I love it. I know you probably always hear this, but I love your voice and the way you talk. <laughs> no, I actually, I hear the opposite. I hear that I'm too Southern, too country, and I talk too fast. But that was really nice. <laughs> so thank you so much. And this is me signing off because your girl's tired. <laughs> I did a lot of driving this week, and I don't even like driving. So, let's do it again. Same time, same place, next Wednesday. See you then. That's how my mama murdered a podcast.